0: The third week of a series that we're calling "Coming to Grips," and uh, this series was uh, is really about how do we uh, deal with death and loss in our lives. Uh, Death is is a universal experience in that all of us one day will die, but it's a universal experience in that all of us deal with death, Uh, and uh, all of us have lost loved ones or uh, something that we loved. And uh, what what does the Bible have to say about that, and what do we do with that? And um, I hope that this series has been helpful to you. Uh, today, uh, what I want to do is I want to uh, I want to teach more than than preach. Uh, do you know the difference between teaching and preaching? Uh, preaching is is when I get uh, real excited and I start yelling and I start like kind of jumping up and down and uh, all of you look at me like I'm crazy. And uh, it's, it's, it's like when I would say, you know, God loves you. There's hope in the middle of your circumstance. Don't give up. That's preaching. Um, teaching is, is more of a, uh, an, an exploration and an explanation of, of those preaching points, right? And, and so rather than me just sort of say, God loves you, teaching would be, here's how we know that God loves you. And here's the evidence that points us to the fact that God loves you or or rather than me saying there's hope in the middle of your circumstance don't give up it's God's gonna bring you to the other side and then teaching would say here's how we can have hope and here's what hope looks like and so today I I want to I want to teach more than preach and uh I I might preach here and there but (laughs) but I want I want to teach and so uh Teaching is, um, is sometimes harder than preaching. Uh, preaching is meant to inspire you, uh, but teaching can often be, present you with ideas that you're not used to, and I think that that will be uh, the case here this morning, is that you'll be presented with some ideas that maybe you're not used to or that you've heard for the very first time. And, and I want to encourage you to, to listen closely, uh, to lean in, to, to open your heart uh, to what God would want to, to say to you. And uh, so as, as we get started this morning, um, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your presence uh, in this place already. And uh, we ask God not that your presence would join us, but we ask, Lord, that you would give us uh, a real sense of your presence, that you would uh, help us to, to feel and be aware of your presence. And Lord, as we open up your word together, may we also open up our hearts to what you would want to say to us. Uh, I pray, God, that you would take my words and that you would uh, translate them into precisely what what we need to hear. And so, Lord, be with us in these moments, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, What I want to do today, and it looks like my technology is not working, and so I'm just going to give up on this. So, is everybody all right? I don't know. This is a hard moment for me. I think you, you all are probably doing better than, than I am. Based on the trouble that I was having with the technology, I went old school, okay? So I didn't save a tree this morning, but I'll have what I need. Um, I want to talk to you today about grief. Um, because grief is, along with death and loss, grief is, is the aftermath of that. Uh, grief is this, this process that we go through. Uh, that is that sort of walks us through how to deal with these losses. And, and the first thing I want to say about grief this morning, and, and we're going to get to a Bible passage, but I want to kind of set the stage a little bit. Grief is, is really God's gift that helps us deal with loss. That if we didn't have the process of, of grieving in the middle of loss, in, in the middle of death and loss, we would get stuck. Uh, we would be paralyzed if we didn't have a process of grieving, and so grieving uh, while it 's very difficult and while it 's very hard, I want you to, to sort of shift your mindset of, of grief sort of being this, this, this really terrible and difficult thing that we have to make it our way through as really seeing it as god 's gift. grief is god 's gift to you that allows you to work through the loss and I also want to help you know that, that when you lose someone, you don 't just get over it, you get through it. And that's a really important distinction because, because you will probably never just get over the fact that you lost your dad or your spouse or your grandparent or your parent. You don't, you don't just get over that. You get through it with God's help and with God's presence in your life. And so grief, we have to first of all understand is that it's a, it's a tremendous gift that God has given to us as a way of helping us Get through it, not over it. Uh, if we'll go to the next slide, there are some stages of grief that are very typical. Uh, again, I told you this is very presentation-like, very much teaching. Uh, there are some stages of grief. Uh, the first stage is, is denial or shock. And this is, um, this is the, the time immediately following a loss. And uh, maybe, maybe some of you are here today and you uh, just got news that, uh, that someone close to you has passed away in, the, in just the last few days. Uh, There's a good chance that you may be in this phase of grieving where it's denial and loss and, and you begin to to say to yourself, this isn't happening, or it's all just a bad dream, or you're emotionally numb. You, you, some of you may remember uh, in the first few days after losing someone very close to you, those, all, all those days just felt very numb, and you don't remember feeling much of, of anything emotionally. Sure, there were tears, and, and, and yet at the same time there was laughter, and, and you were sort of going up and down on a roller coaster of emotions, and, and coming outside of that, you would really describe that period of time as just being emotionally Numb. After that, oftentimes people walk into a uh, a stage of anger, and they say, "Well, where where is God in this?" and and you remember last week when we looked at John chapter eleven, it was. Uh, it was Martha, after her brother Lazarus died, that, that told Jesus, if, you, if only you had been here, right? And, and sometimes the, the if-only statements that we make are, are sometimes done in anger. God, if only you would have prevented this, or if only you would have done this, if only you would have come through, if only you would have answered the prayers in the way that we were praying them, then this wouldn't have happened. And so anger comes after, a lot of times, denial and shock, and anger of where is God in this? Anger at those who didn't attend the funeral. Anger at the deceased for leaving, right? I remember after my dad died about a year ago, I remember people saying, I'm just I'm just mad at him because he left, you know? And, and we have this stage of anger. And then there's bargaining. Um, if you just bring them back, God, I will never fill in the blank. I'll never have another drink if you'll just bring them back. I'll, I'll never look at those things again if you'll just bring them back. I, I, I will never... I will never say anything bad about them if you just bring them back. I'll 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 be more positive if you just bring them back. We begin bargaining with God. Is often the third stage, and then the fourth stage, depression. and And I don't want I don't want you to misunderstand this word in terms of not a clinical depression or or a chemical imbalance in your body, but just sort of this this overwhelming sorrow and, and feeling of sorrow that the, the, the reality of the loss begins to sink in, and and sadness is um, just becomes. Overwhelming, and a lot of times in the stage of, of depression, we'll begin to withdraw, and begin to say things. Well, why, why should I even go on? Why, why should I go on? And uh, you know, what if I if I can't have this person, if I can't have this thing, because by the way, when we lose something, we can walk through these same stages of of grief. Uh, this isn't just for death, and so the sadness is overwhelming. We tend to withdraw, and then. And then we move to acceptance. And acceptance is, is not everything is okay, and this is all fine. But acceptance is establishing a new normal. Here's what life looks like without this loved one. Here's what life looks like without this thing. And it's not a way of saying, oh, it's, let's just pretend like that never happened. And it's not a way of saying, oh, this is all just fine, and, and it's okay. But it's a way of saying uh, that gap will never be filled, but now I have to establish a new normal. And so, uh, a lot of times, the stages of grief are, are communicated as a line, uh, sort of a straight line, that you go through denial, and then you go through anger, and then you go through bargaining, and then you go through depression, and then you go through acceptance, and and uh, many of you are that are, have experienced loss recently are trying to probably place yourself on this continuum, but you're probably having a difficult time because you've probably noticed that that grief is not as linear, and as clean as we like to make it sound. And the the reality is that grief is much more like this. It's, uh, I'm all the time bouncing back and forth between them. And in the first few moments, after the loss, I could go through shock, and then I could wake up the next morning and and take a deep breath and, and sort of live in this moment of acceptance. I'm okay with this. And then we think, oh, great, that wasn't so bad. But then we bounce back and, and into the, the, the next morning we wake up, we're, we're feeling this overwhelming sadness and depression. And so, so grief really isn't as clean and as linear as we like to, to think of it. It's not just this clean line, but it's a, really a web of, of things that are happening all at the same time, all in the wrong order. But these are nevertheless the elements of what it means to grieve and to, to walk through God's gift. But while grieving is God's gift to us, I I want to to make a, a very clear statement that grieving is not the same as hope. That grieving is not the same as hope. In other words, that is to say that when we grieve and when we go through this process and when we walk through these steps that aren't really steps but sort of these this web of feelings and emotions, as we're going through that process, we have to have a foundation that that sort of gives strength to it all, that allows us to really walk through this event and this loss and not just get over it. And if we don't have a foundation of hope, then then we're going to grieve without hope. And then we're gonna be left to believe that we really do just need to get over it. And in fact, probably some of you have have. Some of you have heard that and have been told that by by loved ones who meant well, but in the midst of their loss, they probably said to you, you know what, it's been six months. It's time to get over it. I mean, how many of you have heard that? It's been two years. Get over it. Move on. And I think that grief is a gift that says, I'm not just going to get over it, but rather with God's help and a foundation of hope. I'm going to walk through it. Does that make sense? That's a, that's a very important and distinct difference. We don't just get over losing our loved ones. We walk through it with God's help and God's presence in our life. And so grieving is not the same as hope. And we really need a foundation of hope for our grieving. Because grieving without hope will not only lead us to believe that we have to get over it, but it will lead to incomprehensible loss and heartache. And kind of where we've been so far in this series and what we talked about last week is that hope has a name, right? If we need this foundation of hope uh, in the process of grieving and we build that on top of what we learned last week, which is hope has a name and his name is Jesus. We have a great hope in Christ and, and the the... the, the the new ideas that I've been trying to communicate in this series is that our hope does not lie primarily in just going to heaven when you die. But what the new Testament talks about and what the Bible talks about is bodily resurrection into God's new world. And the new world means this world redeemed God's good creation made new again. And so that's the hope that the new Testament offers us. And in the foundation of that is that hope has a name and his name is Jesus. That was a little bit of preaching. (laughs) In fact, I want to remind you of the picture that I drew last week. And I I made this really bold statement that if you can understand this picture, you can understand the Bible. Uh, Maybe that was a little bit overblown, but not much. Not much. Um, Here's the picture. Uh, This this, uh, kind of builds. So here's a timeline. Let's stop there. Okay. So we have this timeline of the world. It begins with creation. And then the fall and then we have the resurrection of Jesus, and then we have the kingdom of God. And that is to say that all the fullness of the kingdom of God, breaking in, this is God's renewed world right here at the end. And notice that's not the end, because we live for all of eternity in God's new creation, in God's new world, experiencing all the fullness of, of God's presence. Uh, we live, This world is, is described in Revelation as as being this world that has no more death and no more dying or pain or tears. It's a world where where the river of life flows freely and offers drink to any of those who are thirsty. It's a world described as, as where trees bear their fruit once a month, where, where, where God's good creation is just bursting forth with bounty and goodness and beauty. That's the world that we get to look forward to. But after creation, our Original brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve, at the fall, sinned and disobeyed God. And the effects of sin, the cost of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. Remember in Romans, Paul says the wage of sin, the cost of sin, is death. And so at their disobedience, death entered the world. And the effect of that was that, and go ahead and go to the next slide, that the fall brought death all the way until the kingdom of God is fully established. And so the effects of the fall was that death entered our world. We have to deal with it. That's why we're here today. That's why we're having this series, is death is a reality in our world. It was entered into our world through the fall, and the effect will be felt until the very kingdom of God comes in all of its fullness. But Jesus was resurrected. And what that did is it brought the kingdom of God forward into our time. And so right now, you and I live in between the resurrection of Jesus and all the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so we see breaking into our world the goodness, the hope, the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace of the kingdom of God. And yet at the same time, what we must wrestle with is the reality of of sin and bitterness and cynicism and death and all of those expressions of those things also in our world. And we live in this tension. Does that make sense? You see the tension every night when you watch the news or when you check your news feed, however you get your news. I get all my news on Twitter now. Don't make fun of me, okay? Okay. Um, so however you get your news, you don't have to, to look very far to see that tension, right? And so this is the world in which we live. Now, all of this uh, this has some implications. I want to kind of build on what I said last week before we jump into all of our content for this week. and that, And that is to say the implication of this is that heaven, as we've often talked about it in our culture, is really not the end. Even though we have made it the end. We have made the goal of the Christian life to get to heaven when you die. Uh, but that is not the end that Jesus talks about. In the middle of Martha's, if only, Jesus does not say to Martha, at least Lazarus is in heaven. He said, he points her to a far greater future that he will be resurrected in God's new world. And then he illustrates that fact by resurrecting him right then and there. He, he makes the point very poignant and right there in her face, and he lives again in, in this world. So we have that, but... Uh, your loved ones, so, so heaven is not the end. New creation is the end. And your loved ones who have died, if they have died in Christ, are now enjoying all the fullness of God's presence. I'm not saying that heaven isn't real. I'm not, making, I'm not saying that heaven isn't great. But I'm, what I'm saying is that the, a disembodied existence in a far-off heaven is not the end as we have often thought about it in the Christian life. But rather, those who die... Go and enjoy the presence of God in all of its fullness and await bodily resurrection into God's new creation. That's the teaching of the New Testament. Okay? And that's brand new for a lot of you. But that's why today I wanted to take a more teaching approach. In other words, as N.T. Wright says, uh, he says that uh, the Bible says almost nothing about going to heaven when you die and a whole lot about God's new world. And so that's where we've been so far in the series. And today we're talking about grief. And I want to talk to you about a passage that begins with these words. I don't want you to grieve without hope. In other words, this passage gives us this foundation of hope and how we're to approach the grieving process. And I want to read it together. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, as it comes up on the screen and as you find it in your Bibles and uh, all of that, I want to give you just a little bit of uh, context. And the context is that Paul, uh, as he writes this, is, his concern is very pastoral. In other words, people are wondering in the church in Thessalonica, people are wondering, well, those who have died be left in their grave when Christ returns. In other words, uh, in the first century, when Jesus talked about returning and, and coming back, they all assumed that he would come back before the end of their lifetime. And so when, when people in their in their community began dying, that, there, that arose a really big concern. What has happened to those who have died and what will happen to those who have died in our community that are... Um, that, that, are, that are now passed away, what is going to happen to them when Christ returns? When Christ returns, what happens to those who have died and have been a part of our community? And so Paul speaks to them very pastorally, and he's addressing a particular kind of concern when he writes this. And they, uh, so he writes these words. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, There is universal agreement that the term here, fall asleep, is a word picture for those who have died, those who have passed away. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and he rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that those, we who are still alive and who are left to the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are, being le- and are left will be caught up together with them uh, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words therefore encourage one another with these words now there is uh there is a theology in the church that points to this passage as its uh as its key passage and that is the theology of the rapture and so the first question that we have to address and I I feel like we have to address this anytime we look at this passage is we have to ask the question is this really talking about rapture and uh, rapture theology, if you're not familiar with that, is very prevalent in modern-day Christian circles. Uh, many consider this to be the proof text. you know what a proof text is? A proof text is, is that true? Yes, look at this one verse. That's a proof text. And, uh, and so many consider this to be the proof text for, for rapture theology. Uh, many have understood uh, belief in the rapture to be orthodox Christianity uh, that has been taught that as long as Christianity has been around. And uh, I, want to, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I want to spend a few moments talking about this because I feel like that in order to understand what Paul is saying in this passage when he talks about uh, us grieving with hope or not grieving without hope, we have to understand what is being said in this passage and what is not being said. And uh, so we'll spend a few minutes here and then get to what Paul is, is really talking about. And um, so, so let's tackle this together. You guys doing all right? Okay. A couple thoughts about rapture. Uh, rapture comes from the word rapier, the Latin word rapier, meaning to seize or to abduct. Uh, this word does not appear in the Bible uh, anywhere in its Latin form, Greek form, Hebrew form. It doesn't appear in the Bible at all. Uh, and, and many people get a lot, a lot pretty caught up in that. Uh, that how, can we, how can this be a, a true thing if it's not found in the Bible? Well, the word Bible isn't found in the Bible, and uh, the word Trinity isn't found in the Bible. And so that's not a very good argument for saying that the rapture isn't uh, an orthodox Christian belief. We have to move beyond that to further evidence uh, because Trinity is an orthodox Christian belief and is widely held and regarded as being true, that God exists in three persons. The rapture is called the secret return of Christ. It's the stage one of a two-stage return of Christ. That is to say that that, uh, in the first stage, uh, people say God will, Christ will come back secretly uh, for the church. And that is to say that the rapture uh, from this passage is the belief that at some point in history, uh, God will uh, send up all those who are alive and believe in him. And uh, they will be uh, left out of airplanes or cars or homes or uh, where at work or workplaces, wherever they are, their clothes will be lying there. We're all going to Go up naked. I don't know how you feel about that. but So, uh, and it's, it's, it's called a secret return. In other words, those who are unbelievers will not notice or will not see those who are going up in the sky to meet the Lord. They will not see Jesus and they will not see the, the believers going up to meet him. Uh, but rather it will happen very suddenly and uh, it will be as though they just disappeared out of thin air. Uh, that, that's a little bit problematic, particularly if you use this as a proof text, because uh, the the return of Christ that's described here in First Thessalonians is not very secret. Uh, there's uh, a loud trumpet, there's a, an archangel, there's there's uh, there's all kinds of noise happening. There's not it's not very secret at all, and so um, that's a little bit problematic. And then the, that's so the stage one is is God comes for the church, and then uh, stage two is that Christ comes with the church. Uh, he comes back with the church, and that's the public uh, return of Christ. And, and my argument would be that I don't see anywhere in Scripture that it talks about a two-stage return, and there's nothing in 1 Thessalonians that would indicate that this is stage one of, of something else going on. Uh, the third thing is uh, that it was not taught on any level in Christianity. Uh, there's absolutely no evidence of this being taught on any level uh, in any way, until the late 19th century, and so we have about 18 or 1900 years of Christianity before we discover uh, this belief that uh, God will will send His believers up. And so we we that to me is a very big argument against belief in the rapture uh, because it's it's uh, brand new. It's it's something that. You know, the forefathers of our faith managed to work out a doctrine of the Trinity based on the evidence of Scripture. They managed to work out all these things. And it wasn't until one man named John Darby in the late 19, uh, or 1800s uh, began teaching this. And later, Schofield, a guy named Schofield wrote a Schofield reference Bible where he began referencing everything according to this one theology. Um, and so, as your pastor, I don't feel like this is a biblical belief. Um, But I also want to say that the beauty of this community and the beauty of the denomination that we're a part of is that we allow uh, lots of freedom uh, of belief on non-essential items and non-essential points of theology. And this is a non-essential point of theology. Uh, If you uh, aren't convinced, if you flat-out disagree, uh, then that's okay. You're welcome in this community. There's room for that. I just feel like my role is to be a teacher Uh, And uh, as I've studied the scripture, I don't feel like that when Paul says, I want you to grieve with great hope, I don't feel like he says that our great hope is that one day we will be sucked up to heaven secretly uh, and leave all of those on this world who haven't believed in Christ um, to wonder what in the world happened. And I don't believe that scripture talks about a two-stage return of Christ. Um, and so, uh, and I've studied this at length, and this is what I've become convinced of. Uh, but again, I don't want to spend a lot of time here. I do want to see what First Thessalonians is talking about. And so, uh, let's go there now. There's uh, two particular kind of Greek words that go on right here. Uh, I told you, are you guys okay with the, the teaching? The preaching is a little more exciting, right? Because my voice gets really loud and all of you get woken up. Okay, so if you were asleep, there's your wake-up call, and uh, welcome to seminary, right? Some of you never wanted to go to seminary, uh, but you're here today, so that's good. I want to look at two Greek words to help us get a grasp on on what on what Paul is talking about here and the hope that we have. Uh, the first word is anastemi. This is the word for uh, for rise. This is the exact same word uh, that is used in the John chapter eleven passage that we just looked at last week, where where Martha where, where Martha says, "I know my brother will rise again at the resurrection," and Jesus says, "Your brother will rise again," and 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 then he says, "I am I am the resurrection." Where he says he takes this verb and he turns it into a noun and we do that all the time when you google something right i googled it that's turning a noun into a verb and we did we had all this discussion if you weren't here last week then you can uh, listen to it on podcast but but it's clear that that in john chapter 11 they were talking about bodily resurrection real flesh and blood getting up and breathing new life into real flesh and blood, into a body that will not decay or be destroyed, but will be ready to live for all of eternity in God's new creation. That's clear that that's what John chapter 11 is talking about. And in 1 Thessalonians, the exact same Greek word is used again when they say rise, when it says he will rise up. It's the word anastemi. It's again the exact same word. It's the same root word as when Jesus responds, I am the resurrection. I am the anastasis. In other words, Paul here is echoing the teaching of Jesus that real hope lies not in evacuation from the world but in the certainty that one day we'll be resurrected into this world that has been fully and completely redeemed. This creation. Not some, some sort of other creation. Not some sort of other thing located in our space-time. Unit. Universe, that if you were just to go high enough, you'd eventually get to heaven. But Jesus is talking, Paul is talking about resurrection into God's new world. Not the world is destroyed and our souls fly up into heaven, but this world is redeemed. Our bodies are redeemed with it so we can enjoy unbroken relationship with Christ for all of eternity. That's what this passage is talking about. It's not talking about. Evacuation is talking about resurrection. It's the same Greek word. There's another very particular Greek word when it talks about we're going up to meet Jesus in the air, and that is the Greek word apentesis. How many of you love Greek and you're soaking this up? Thank you for your encouragement, all eight of you. How many of you are like, I could do with or without Greek? Just give me the bottom line, okay? I got a person on the front row who will remain unnamed, all right? Anybody else? okay. I can do without the Greek, but let's work our way through it. The Greek word for, I will meet them in the air, is the Greek word apentesis. It is used only three times in the New Testament. It's a very, very specific and particular kind of Greek word. And it's used right here. This is one of the three, apentesis. It's used to describe the practice of meeting a dignitary outside of the city and then accompanying him back into the city. It's used in Matthew chapter 25, verse 6, where the bridesmaids go out to meet the bridegroom and then they accompany him into the banquet. It's the same word that is used in Acts 28. And I want to look at that passage specifically. Acts 28, verses 14 through 16. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. This is Paul and his travel companion. The brothers there had heard that we were coming. And so they traveled as far as the Forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet, to appentice us. And then at the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And then when we got to Rome? And so Paul and his travel companion are going to Rome. The people in Rome hear about his coming, are so excited that he's coming, they go out to meet him as far as these two geographical locations, and then they accompany him back into Rome. When we all got to Rome. This is saying, it's used... The same way, it's used only twice and in the same way, and then we come to this Thessalonians passage. And I believe there's no reason to think that it's being used in any different kind of way. What Paul is describing here is that when Christ returns, those who have died as, that are part of our community, those who have died in faith, in Christ, will rise Resurrection, right? Bodily resurrection. They will rise first. And then those who are alive will meet him in the air. And it describes Jesus as coming down. And so what I want you to picture is that when Christ returns and when the trumpet sounds and when the archangel and we have all these beautiful descriptions of God's returning what happens is that Jesus appears. The dead in Christ are resurrected into their new bodies. Those of us who are still alive will rise up to meet him in the air and then we will all be ushered in to God's new creation together. This new creation where the trees bear its fruit once a month, where the river of life flows so that no one will be thirsty, where there's no more death or crying or pain or tears or and death has finally died. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that this will happen in the twinkling of an eye. That those of us who are still alive at his return will in an instant be given our glorified body. We don't have to bodily die and then be resurrected because we're alive when Christ returns, right? If we're alive when Christ returns, which we don't know and I'm not going to predict, right? But... Those who are still alive at the return of Christ are changed in the twinkling of an eye, given their new bodies, their glorified bodies, their real flesh and blood bodies to live in a real flesh and blood and dirt and water world that has been redeemed by God, where we get to enjoy for all of eternity. You see, we've assumed that heaven is static. We've assumed that heaven is just sort of like floating on clouds and harps and halos and it's just it's all just the same forever and ever 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 and ever. And if you say that enough, it turns into never. But and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we've assumed that heaven is sort of the static existence. Can you? Believe for a moment that the creator of the universe, the good God who created this world, would invite us into an environment that is static and the same forever. No! God redeems this world, makes it brand new, and, off, uh, and makes us brand new, and then offers us to us as a gift to live for all eternity in a dynamic, ongoing, created world. It's a beautiful thing. And man, I'll tell you what, the far side and other cartoons and all of our cultural understandings of heaven have hijacked the good news of the gospel. That's preaching. We have hijacked the good news and the hope that the gospel offers us. And I, I apologize for the strong language, but we have neutered the idea of heaven. And we've made it so boring. When the New Testament talks about this world being redeemed and us being redeemed and being ushered in to God's new world together. And so the passage ends encourage one another with this. In fact, I hope that some of you are encouraged as we've explored this passage together. I hope that you've been encouraged by the good news that God has for us. And so the bottom line is this, this passage is not, is about resurrection. It's not about evacuation. And I know that many of you are asking this question. Uh, what does this have to do with Grief. Did I miss something? Right? That's awesome. And I'm glad you're excited about it. But what does this have to do with grief? Paul doesn't want us to grieve without hope. And so what does that look like? If we, if we, sort of, if we take this message of hope that Paul gives us in this passage and we, and we take it away, what does the grieving look like then? And there's two things that I want to point out, and there's much more, but just two things that I want to point out of what it looks like to grieve without hope. If we didn't have this great hope that the gospel offers us, what would it look like to grieve those who we have lost? And the first thing is that if we grieve without hope, then death has the last word. I mean, if you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus, might I, offer you in, might I invite you into a great hope, for the future where death has been defeated by the resurrection of Christ and where death will ultimately be defeated in you as well, where you die in Christ. You live, you die a bodily death and yet in Christ and through faith, you will be bodily resurrected into God's new world. There is a tremendous hope in that, a hope of life, a hope of a future. And if you take that away, what does it mean to grieve without hope? It is a blaring declaration that death is all there is and, and death has the final word. And how hopeless is that? If you take this picture away, then you are left with nothing but the disease won. You are left with nothing but the accident that killed him was the final word. And that is a hopeless, hopeless position. It also looks like this. There's no hope of future relationship. There's no hope of future relationship. If death has the last word, then there is ultimately no hope that I will ever get to have any kind of relationship with this person on any level. And that again is a hopeless position. And so I want you to sort of imagine with me that that Paul is saying there's, there's brothers and sisters in Thessalonica that are grieving without hope. In other words, they're going to a funeral, and rather than pointing in the middle of all the if-onlys that the congregation has that is attending the funeral, in the middle of all of those, rather than echoing the hope of Jesus that there's a future beyond this, that there's something to look forward to, that there's a hope that that lies behind all of this, if in the middle of all of the if-onlys we just had to say, you've just got to get over it because that's all there is death has had the final word the accident said it's did its piece the disease had its expressed itself in all of its fullness to this person they have died and you have nothing else in the middle of your if only if you're grieving without hope all you can hope to do is get over it and how many times have we proven to ourselves that we can't just get over it There may be some of you here today that are just trying to get over something. And you've discovered that it's an insurmountable task without the hope of the gospel. So, if we grieve without hope, death has a final word. There's no hope of future relationship. Well, what does it look like to grieve with hope? With hope, death is defeated and will be one day swallowed up in life and in victory in Christ. I mean, that, that, that's a way of saying that in the middle of the if only, in the middle of the if only hadn't gotten in that car, if only we had found the cancer earlier, earlier, if only he hadn't done this, if only she wouldn't have done that, if only I would have had a chance to say what I always wanted to say, but I didn't get a chance to. If in the middle of all of those if onlys, if we have the, the, the foundation of hope in the middle of our grieving, then we can say there will come a day when this death is finally defeated. There will come a day when death is swallowed up by life and victory in Christ and we can rise up in the middle of that and we can walk through the difficulty we can come to grips with the loss because we have a sure hope of the future do you see what I'm saying in this series that the voice of the Bible is of one voice univocal it always points us to the hope of God's new creation and bodily resurrection and we've so cheapened that in the way that we've thought about the afterlife. And I want to take a teachable moment to, say, to offer you what I believe is a much more authentic and a much more fruitful hope for our lives. Death is defeated and will be one day swallowed up by life for those who are in Christ. And with that, we have the hope of future relationship. That those that have passed on We will one day see again and know again. And not sort of like in this mysterious way of how will we recognize them? Will my spirit recognize their spirit? Will my heart sort of know it's their heart? And will we sort of interact as spirits in the world? No, you will recognize them because they are embodied. Maybe not in the same way, but there's that hope of future relationships. Where death finally dies, and we one day are all together in God's new world, experiencing His new creation. It's a beautiful, beautiful hope that the gospel offers us. In our last closing moments, I want to address this question: Well, does it matter whether I find? Does it matter where I find hope, whether in rapture or resurrection? And um, I think it does. If you take these beliefs to their logical conclusion, you have very different types of hope. Here's, a, here's the kind of hope that... You, and again, uh, if you take these to their logical conclusion, some of you may, may hold on to a belief in in this way or that, and, and maybe you haven't taken that belief all the way to its logical conclusion, but if you do, these are the kinds of hopes that you're left with. If you If you have number one, hope for evacuation, then, then the hope is disengagement or at least limited engagement. And that is to say, this world is going to hell, but I'm going to heaven. You wanna come with me, right? Please stay focused. Don't be distracted. Please stay focused as we close this. The world is, is going to hell, but I'm going to heaven. You wanna come with me? I'm getting out of here. You can too. The world's going down in hell in a handbasket, but at least, at least I'm getting out of here. That leads to a limited engagement at best. And at worst, A total disengagement of what's happening in this world. Redemption, taking something broken. And making it new again. We, we lose the meaning of redemption when we have a, a theology of evacuation. I'm just getting out of here. This world is going to be destroyed in favor of God's, uh, in favor of something else. That loses the meaning of redemption. Redemption is not something else. It's something made brand new. When you came to know Christ, the, the, the promise of the Bible is that you were made into a new creation. Does that mean that God destroyed you and made you a new you? No, that means that he took you and made you new. He fundamentally changed your heart. You still had the same personality. You still had the same interests and propensities, and yet they were all given over to the glory of God. So that the Bible says, "You, you are still you, but you are a new creation." The same is true for our world. We, when we say that the world is going to just be destroyed and we're going to get out of here, we lose the meaning of redemption. And the Bible is all about restoration and redemption. And the hope from evacuation has a Gnostic tendency. Gnosticism says that material, anything physical is bad or suspect. Everything spiritual is good and much better. And so the goal becomes to dump material in favor of the spiritual. And if that's the goal, uh, just to get out of here and, and exist in a spiritual world, then that has very Gnostic tendency. And then hope from evacuation is, uh, it makes heaven the end. that The goal becomes making it to heaven, but the end isn't heaven somewhere, it's creation redeemed. Let me finish this up. Hope from resurrection is the opposite, it's engagement. If God's plan is to redeem this world and not to evacuate us out of this world, then we are going to be more motivated and deeply engaged in what is happening in and to this world. And I don't just mean Recycling. Some were like, do you hear that? Pastor said the whole point of the Christian life is to recycle. <laughs> nope. No, I didn't say that. Hope from resurrection is that hope is present and future. If all we're trying to do is get out of there, then hope is, then hope is purely uh, future-oriented. Resurrection says that God's new world is breaking in right here and right now, and it moves hope into the present. Uh, we ha- it affirms the goodness of creation. Jesus was raised in a physical body. God created the world and called it good. Material things uh, are not suspect. They were created by God. These are all the good things. Uh, there are all good things There are all kinds of good things in this world that God uh, has made for us to enjoy as long as they remain in their proper place under the Creator and don't become an idol. And then hope for resurrection makes new creation the end. God is on a mission of redemption. And those who have died in Christ are in the meantime right now enjoying all the fullness of the presence of God until the new creation is finally realized. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit roadfc.org and click online giving.